Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and today we are getting unplugged yet again. And I'm going to hand it over to your unplugged co-hosts, J.D. Wallace and Master of Ceremonies, Andrew Miller. Gentlemen, it's really exciting to be doing volume two of Unplugged with you. Looking forward to seeing how we continue to evolve this format and go deeper into everything pure. Thank you, Rob. I think this is where you start to get a sense of we just start to go a little bit maybe all over the place. We've got some plans. We've got an agenda. That's not super scripted. I think that's the plan. That's the goal, basically, right? JD, we had um feels like we're busy every week. We were looking through stuff. So to preview for if you're listening and you're like, do I want to listen to the rest of this? Hopefully the answer is yes by default. But in case you're wondering a little bit of some of what we're going to go through, a little bit of analyst commentary. There's been some recent announcements. We'll hit on those with uh, Fusion. Portworks Data Services, then a little bit of just what you're doing this week, which actually hopefully is interesting, like a little bit of an insight into our calendar, what we see with and conversations we have. There's going to be a tip of the week because, hey, there's deeper, interesting stuff. It may not apply to you, but either way, we'll tell some interesting stories with it. Architectural decisions. We said there's 15 of those that went behind pure. We're going to hit on number one this week, a little bit of pure behind the scenes. And then I think, JD, there was this, this something of the month that you want you and Rob wanted to close up with. Oh yeah. So, uh, I can't wait to get to that. Um, Rob and I've been sampling some, some awesome libations and we'll talk about that a little bit, but first I want to say, Rob, thanks for having us back. Um, I don't know if it was, uh, I don't know if it was because our last episode did, did so well, or if it was the check that we sent you in the mail, but we're certainly happy to be back, uh, with you again for the pure report unplugged. This is a lot of fun. And Andrew, you pointed out a lot of cool stuff we're going to get to today. I'm excited to get into it. I mean, that that check in the mail and how the episode did, I feel like this is where we just embrace the healing power of and I'm sure but both of well, those were positive things. But you know. well, well, I did notice one of your segments was the, you know, part one of the uh, the 15 uh, design uh, architectural decisions. So I feel like we've kind of uh, forced our foot in the door a little bit for at least 14 more of these. Right. Hmm. This almost feels like you. Yeah. For that, we're definitely going to be able to cover that. I want to get through. I'm excited. I'm excited to see you plow through all of those architectural decisions. That's a reason enough. And you just keep the checks coming. I'll deposit. <laughs> and, you know, in good. Hey, that beer doesn't buy itself, does it, Rob? Beer doesn't buy itself, and in in, in good improv form, which is always yes and. The, the first episode you all did for Unplugged also did really well. So it was people very interested, I think, in hearing this new format, but also getting getting to hear more of you they get they get enough of me on a regular basis so more andrew more jd at least as far as the unplugged segment goes and to be very clear when we say check in the mail we mean a very small percentage of that direct deposit you get once or twice a month from from this company called pure so just just being upfront about you know the, the methods here okay set so part number one we'll try and keep it straight as we go through a bunch of kind of kind of segments here if you want segment number one decided to call it analyst a palooza because hey if you have more than one it could be a palooza or maybe we just i just like to say the word palooza they're the first one i may have just tossed to you jd on october 1st gartner magic quadrant for distributed file systems and object storage i think i said that without an um or a mistake in there what does that mean yeah, so this is maybe one of your non-traditional, maybe that's not the right word. So we think about a magic quadrant for storage, we think about primary storage, but there's a lot of other types of storage out there. And, you know, I would argue a, maybe an emerging um, mm -hmm. uh, segment a little bit, this distributed file systems and object storage, man, that aligns really nicely with a product we call FlashBlade. And uh, on October 1st, we were... Uh, Pure was in the leader quadrant of that magic quad, and that was really exciting. We were, we were really honored to see that. I always think about this, and this is when I, when I was doing on the customer side, I would start off often for better or worse. I mean, I look at a lot of different stuff at a bunch of different analysts. Okay, fine. But I, one of my selection things was I just start by looking at the MQ about the people that I had to look at, you know, that kind of thing. And then, mm -hmm. I, and then I'd and sometimes I'd wander outside too because he'd want some new stuff or, oh, the capabilities aren't moved into the MQ yet. Number two, though is definitely near and dear to Pierce heart because October 11th, another Gartner Magic Quadrant for primary storage for the eighth year, I want to say, keep me honest there, Rob and JD, because there's even a little bit of a story there. It's the eighth year for Flash Array. Okay, we don't want to be shy about the products, but this Magic Quadrant has morphed over the years. And there's even a little bit of a, a personal story from here because I, I remember seeing this first when I was on the partner side. And the first MQ came out for all flash storage. And, and that's where Pure sat. 
obviously kind of thing. And there were some other products in there, some of which have disappeared, some of which are still around, et cetera. Uh, Pure has some longevity there. When I was joining Pure, actually, when I was at, actually in my previous job, I saw a little bit more behind the scenes of how the MQ was constructed with like customer interviews and um, both marketing and technical teams having long discussions with Gartner and preparing videos and all this stuff. Like there's sometimes from the outside, it's like, oh, hey, look, new MQ. And then, but it's like hundreds and thousands of hours of work from Gartner as well as the respective vendors to prepare for that kind of thing. So there was some real nervousness inside Pure. I think I'm allowed to say this, you know, about three years ago when the MQs were merged, the all flash and the, and the general purpose one. Pure came out in that one two years ago really, really well. Last year, clear lead on the MQ. This year, continuing to lead. All of the dots move around a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. But the consistency there, and especially because I heard a little bit behind the covers three, four years ago, different company, about, you know, the pace of development and the continuing speed of feature launch, that definitely influences MQ placement. And the only way you get that is you're actually not just saying you invest money in R&D, but you actually really are, you know, that kind of thing. Where, up to, where can people find these? Yeah, so they're both available on our website, purestorage.com. You can download those. And one of the cool things is, you know how a lot of times when there's a little gimme, um, you know, we want to collect some information about you, maybe your email address, uh, some things like that. Nothing like that here. We want to shout this from the rooftops. You can go to purestorage.com and you can see both of these reports in their entirety. No paywall, no registration wall. Just click and download and they're available to you for you to peruse. Very cool. I think there's a, yeah, I remember doing that over the years where sometimes I'd be like, mm, I got to register, but that's going to spam. Now you don't even have to do that here. You know, we, we don't even make you make that auto file email rule afterwards. Segment number two, I'm looking to make sure. Okay. So segment number two, we had some announcements too around fusion. I'm being really good and we're, I'm hoping I won't slip up and say all the code names that we've known, but as the official name is pure fusion. And as well as we talked about things with pure one, and we talked about PDS, which is the acronym for Portworx Data Services. I think we'll start off with Pure Fusion because that was what we led in the announcement with. If you look at the tagline, it's on the website. It's a good tagline. It's still a tagline, though. Self-service, autonomous storage as code, trademark, built for limitless scale. Um, and actually, I'm saying the trademark piece. So I was actually saying there was a trademark file on some of that. So wh when I think about this, there, there needs to be things that reflect... Uh, multiple audiences here. So it's even sometimes interesting to me, um, putting on my previous customer hat, partner hat, the audiences for launches, Wall Street analysts, investment relations, analyst relations, customers, partners, competitors, right? You know, all these people, it's actually being messaged in, in multiple ways. So the core of Fusion to me is it is actually embracing where we're going for a while. If you've kind of if you kind of squint a little bit, you can see what we've been doing in Pure One with workload planning and modeling, and even some of the data mobility with Active Cluster. Um, we're going to talk more about that later in the tips, but you know it gets into what it really is is about you can define storage classes and you can optimize placement and you know have have things adjust dynamically on the fly, whether it's due to scaling of you know the underlying components or you need to re-optimize the entire fleet. Um, so level of policy driven stuff that even as Pure remains very simple under the covers. That's what's been our saving grace for customers that already have pretty decent sized pure fleets, as well as all the stuff in pure one, that we can actually take that to the next level as people are scaling their storage fleets and having very, dare I say, buzzword alert, cloud-like characteristics and managing their storage. What else, yeah. JD? Yeah, I love that. I think cloud-like is right, but let's, you know, where is that term cloud-like coming from? And I think it really mm -hmm. comes from, it, it comes from this paradigm shift that was definitely brought to us in large part by the, the, the large public clouds, but it was really the ability to go and consume data center objects as services. I don't need to understand what networking and what physical hardware and CPU. And I, I don't need to understand all of the things that are going, that are sitting in that data center for me to say, I need an object, whether it's a virtual machine, whether it's some storage, whether it's a database, you know, whatever it is, I just want to go request that thing and have it show up. Right. And, and the cloud really paved the way for us, but traditional data center deployments 
not necessarily um, <laughs> embrace that yet, right? So let, let's think of, you know, let's think of today. Let's say I am a consumer of storage. I'm writing my application for, you know, for the company and, you know, I need some additional storage to be able to write that application. Well, Today, what does that look like? I'll probably go in and I'll fill out a, a service request. That'll go to somebody in the data center team and they'll say, okay, well, you want some storage, great. Um, let me see which array I'm gonna put that on, which one has the most full. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all these different criteria and maybe in a few days I come back and I say, well, you know what, JD, I saw that you requested 10 terabytes, but we only have five free. Is that going to work for you? And you, you get this very tight coupling. Time. Exactly. It's this, it's this tight coupling between the consumers of the storage and the producers of the storage or the managers of the storage. And I think what Pure Fusion is here to do is really to separate those, right? To make it cloud-like in your, you know, the, the words you use, to make it very cloud-like and how now I'm the application developer. I get to go to this framework and say, here's a class of storage I want. It's this capacity, it's got this kind of performance characteristics, and it has this kind of data protection mode. And I just submit that, maybe in a YAML file, maybe through a script, and, and that gets provisioned to me. And, it, and I don't have to go back and forth and consume that. And now it frees up your storage administrators, rather than dealing with tickets all day, to go and define those storage classes that they're presenting to me that I, as the consumer, can go and take advantage of. And so I, I, I think it's really the start of something exciting in terms of being able to deliver, again, to your point, a cloud-like consumption experience across traditional data center deployments. There was an excellent deep dive. I wasn't paid extra to say that, but a deeper or a deeper dive, at least, folks, with Rob and Anthony uh, Ferrario on a previous pre-report podcast and we're going to be going deeper on that ironically i was actually on a call with a customer with anthony last week and loved how he even walked through some of the pieces of starting with it's an on-demand economy you see that in some of the launch messages you do like everyone wants things on demand we don't want to wait i don't want to wait you don't want to wait storage admins don't or storage requesters don't want to wait either so there's this on-demand access to bringing that in and then like you were mentioning like all the steps in the traditional storage provisioning process due to the tight tight coupling mm -hmm. Second announcement I think hit on is PDS. Do you mind defining the acronym and kind of what it is? PortWorks Data Services. And I don't know if you caught this, Andrew, but I kind of hinted at this a little bit when we talked about Fusion. I talked about being able to consume different things as a service in an automated way. And I, I talked about databases as a service. So, you know, we think about PortWorks today and what has it done? It's really revolutionized the way that, um, again, the end user consumes storage in a Kubernetes environment, right? Well, what's the next evolution of that? So if I can consume storage through these classes and through these APIs, well, what am I going to do with that storage once I get, get it? Well, I'm going to included as part of an application. And when we think about data, what is the most common application? I probably have a database in there somewhere. And there's a lot of different kinds, but you know, I'm probably gonna provision a database on top of that persistent storage. Why not just, rather than provision the storage itself, provision the database. And that's, I think that's the first evolution of what PortWorks Data Services is delivering. And again, it's along those same lines of making self-service provisioning of resources easier and easier for our customers. I think of it just going, we continue to go up stack, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so containers fundamentally gave portability and flexibility, of course, and we layer Kubernetes in fine for automation orchestration, large scale, but PortWorks then helps with all the data services layer. So if you've got that solved or as a company, we've got the pieces to solve that for customers. Why wouldn't we logically go and say, let's take one of the primary data applications, data in a database, what a crazy thought. And actually go and say, you know, hey, we're actually going to expose this on demand to push, be able to push the easy button for I want databases in multiple locations on top of multiple infrastructures. Now, hopefully a lot of that data lives on pure, but as port works, it doesn't have to be. Portworks Data Services says you don't have to worry about inherently where the data lives because we, we take care of that for you as part of it. I believe when we were looking there, there is right now, if you're thinking about like, hmm, that sounds interesting enough, I want to go do something with it. First, you can go and uh, register right now for the Portworks Data Services Early Access. 
and you'll get a response there. And then you can even go portworks.com. Uh, you, anytime you want to, can get download Portworks and actually play around with it. Where's the backup module, the data disaster recovery module, you know, all the different pieces there you can actually play with as a free trial because, hey, it is software. It's only software that, you know, integrates and makes hardware do cool things, but it's software you can play with. Yeah. And, and you said, Xander, but just to clarify, both of those things are available right now, portworks.com. You can download Portworks today, get experience with it. You can also click on, I think there's a little banner right there when you go to the webpage, you can click on Portworks Data Services Early Access and register to learn more about the Early Access program. Cool stuff. There is one last little technical tidbit. You said YAML. I smiled just because I always smile when I hear YAML because there's a whole a little bit of a cynical internet trend around like there's a yet another everything. So if, you've, if you're out there listening and you've heard YAML a bunch of times, you don't know what it means. I mean, Google could tell you, but I'll tell you. Yet another markup language because there got to the point where there are all these, you know, yet another this, yet another that. So it actually got standardized into a little bit of like an inside joke. So YAML, yet another markup language, or it can be YAML ain't markup language. That's a recursive acronym. That's some serious nerd geek humor. Go have fun with Googling on your recursive acronyms too. So since you brought it up, I have to point out, I actually do have a book sitting on my bookshelf right now. It's called the Kubernetes book. And it is written by Nigel Poulton and it is the Klingon edition. And on the front cover of this book is YAML written in Klingon. So there you go. I mean, to make it a little bit easier to read. I feel like you took that even further than I, than I could have. So I, um, we're not competing here, but like, I'm just, I'm going to totally give that one to you. Like, man, that's, that's amazing. And and go learn Klingon too. That will be totally helpful to your career for everyone listening here. I I think (laughs) maybe. Okay. Andrew section, uh, section number three. Uh, so went through a little bit of analyst stuff, uh, some, you know, announcement commentary on fusion and PDS. Number three is very imaginatively called what you doing this week. Or let's actually know if you peel back the, the covers a little bit and think about, you know, what do we do on a day-to-day basis? There's stuff that sometimes we talk about. Sometimes there's stuff that we can't talk about, but we thought it would actually be interesting in this role because as PTSs, we work with customers, partners, engineering, product management, the esteemed and amazing marketing department is represented by Rob Ludeman. Rob, hopefully you're hearing that as I say that, as well as a lot of other folks inside the organization. So JD, I, th- I think you were looking at your calendar and mind uh, cherry picking one or two things you're doing this week that uh, might be interesting for folks. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff. To your to your point, Andrew, one of the things I love about this job, the principal strategist job, is that we get to do so many things. It's 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 kind of a loosely defined what it is that we do. We get to work with PM. We get to record podcasts. We get to um, influence the kind of the direction of some of the things we're doing at Pure. It's really exciting. One of the things I'm working on today is actually um, the RFE process. RFE stands for Request for Enhancement. Um, you know. One of the great things about having so many customer facing conversations, um, and I think you'll agree, is that we get tons of really excellent feedback from our customers. And how do we encapsulate that feedback and present it in a way that it's consumable by our internal teams so they can turn that into to products. And so, you know, one of the things I'm working on today and tomorrow is kind of the workflow for that. Or I think we're going to get to that in a little bit more, maybe in a future segment um, where we talk about kind of behind the scenes. So maybe I'll leave a little bit of that for later. Oh uh, gosh, what else? Um, I have a flash crew user group coming up. Now I'm so excited to get back to these in person. Actually last week I was able to attend the uh, VMworld meetup in person, which was great. We were, it was like a watch party for, for VMworld. Um, this one, the flash crew is still virtual. We're, we're going to make sure that everything's still safe for everybody. So uh, we decided to keep this one virtual. Um, I'm actually not speaking at this one. Uh, Cody Hosterman, friend of the pod is going to be speaking and Andrew, I'll give you exactly three guesses what he's going to be talking about i'm i'm guessing the first two guesses don't count and i'm just going to jump to number three which is totally about not vvols <laughs> no actually cody's going to be there talking about vvols you've you're absolutely right i'm sure we'll probably sneak in some tanzu or maybe even some cloud block store that i know cody's been working on a lot lately so uh, always great to hear him speak i'm looking forward to that Um, and then gosh, I've got some customer calls. Um, one of them is to really kind of talk about ransomware as well as our NVMe strategy. Um, Andrew, I know you are the, 
uh, ransomware go-to guy here when it comes to uh, conversations at Pure Storage. But um, I'm glad you're letting me share that a little bit. We're going to go have some more conversations about what we're doing in that space and how we can help some customers out. What about you, my friend? What are you doing this week? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. This is, the, this is called living the dream. No. PCO and, this week, right? And I totally missed my joke about like more people than me get to talk about ransomware. Like how amazing is that? Because that's awesome. Truly awesome. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll toss a couple things in there. One is uh, a little bit like you mentioned, you know, going to be behind the scenes working with actually product management around some more advanced replication and ransomware and safe mode scenarios thing to requests that we're seeing from customers that start to push the boundaries of current limits and what people have been asking for so you know we're, we're refining that i'll toss two other though so so one is um uh, actually both of these are customer meetings one is totally anonymized as these always should be um, discussion with a customer has a very heavy investment in vsan and you may be like, hmm, if you're listening, Pure and VMware are partners and they like each other, right? But there's some like interesting overlappy things there. So they are seeing some challenges. I'm not going to really go into what the challenges are, but it's enough that they want to have a conversation with us and say like, hey, you know, can you help us out? So you know, some of the stuff we're probably going to run through is like, well, why is Pure the number one VVOL deployed storage platform? As well as how it, you know, it can be this, you know, balance without any trade-offs of optimizing for cost, availability, and performance, talking about storage-based storage policy-based management, SPBM, if I can get my acronyms right. There's even some great blog posts by Jace McCarty around VVOLs and around Pure and vSAN or external storage and vSAN and working together. What's really funny there is he wrote one version of that uh, blog post, very technical blog post, when he worked at VMware. He then wrote a follow-up version of it when he worked at Pure. And what he says in them is basically the same thing. He didn't change his story based on where he worked because it's the same core stuff that you can do, which is great. So we're going to walk through that. Uh, second meeting is a like, you know, you had a, a ransomware and NVMe, which are kind of two separate things, but they're both things we do well. I'm, I've got one around rans- uh, safe mode, ransomware, and then active cluster deep dive. They actually want to go into active cluster and the portability characteristics and that kind of thing. So um, these are as much as I talk about ransomware stuff, um, it is it is cool to be able to talk about a lot of other things for replication and general storage and VMware. I try not to lose my VMware soul entirely. It's receding little bits, but you know, kept the expert over the years. And actually, this is the V expert podcast because we're both V experts, right? So I don't know if we can rebrand on the fly, but hey. Well, you know, I think safe mode and active cluster and all of those things that relate to how we protect our data, those, those have all been, you know, really important conversations. Um, you know, I, I always like to say that we are great ecosystem partners when it comes to data protection. We work hand in hand with many of the data protection vendors that are out there, but there are so many things that we have built right into the product. Um, active cluster is a great example of that. And in, in, in many ways, those can be used standalone. They can also be used to extend uh, those tools that our great alliance partners make. And so um, those, those are those are a lot of fun conversations to have. That's a phenomenal segue into part number four, which is tip of the week, or maybe we'll cheat and do two tips of the week. I don't know. We'll see. We, uh, we're talking there as we've been talking about safe mode. And we think sometimes probably there, if you're listening in, you're thinking about snapshots and data and protection and that takes space. So I think the title of this tip is safe mode capacity planning. Mm -hmm. You want to start there, JD, and then we'll just make it a lot bigger too, but over to you. Absolutely. Well, let me set the stage a little bit here. So when we, so safe mode is the name for the collection of tools that when implemented give us an additional layer of resiliency to objects on the flash array or flash blade. Now I said objects, not safe mode, because there's actually <laughs> multiple different objects that are the, the volume itself, the file system, the snapshots that are created, all of those fall under this safe mode umbrella. But when we're thinking about sizing, it's probably the snapshots that we think of the most. Right, Because what we're doing here is we're saying, hey, with safe mode enabled, I have a snapshot of my data of a point in time or multiple snapshots more likely, and those can't be deleted until a certain time. Right, So I'm putting a timer on when I can get rid of those. So if I'm thinking about sizing, I need to think about, well, how much data are those snapshots holding on to? And how do I work that into my capacity? And the good news is we're not, we're not going to deep dive on snapshots today, but you know, purity snapshots are 
what do you like to say, Andrew? What snapshots want to be when they grow up? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because I always think about that. Like, it's for all of us. It's like, what do we want to be when we grow up? The next stage of growing up. So, so why can't snapshots join in that too? So snapshots are thin. They take no capacity when you first create them. They're incredibly fast, all of those great things. But as your data changes over time, those snapshots are going to be holding on to that change data. And so there's going to be some capacity growth, right? So how do I think about the capacity implications when I'm now holding on to snapshots specifically as a ransomware mitigation strategy, right? And there's two things. This is where the tip comes in. There's two things that I want you to think about. You can actually size for this before you ever turn on safe mode. First thing to actually get those snapshots, we need to create them in the first place. How do we create snapshots? This is not a trick question, Andrew. How do we create snapshots on? We're going to focus on flash rate for this part of the conversation. Uh, you can either just go and make a snapshot, like click the button API UI, or you can have a snazzy protection group policy that does it on demand for it, that does it on a schedule for you that you choose. Absolutely. That's what you're looking for. Absolutely. And if I, if I am going to set this up to be ongoing protection, I'm probably going to do the second one, right? I'm going to create a protection mm-hmm. group that's going to, for example, create a snapshot every day and hold on to that snapshot for, let's say seven days. Right. So the first tip is just go ahead and turn that on. You can do that right now. You don't have to wait on safe mode. You don't have to do anything else today. Go create that protection group, put all the volumes in there that you want to protect and see what kind of additional consumption comes out of that. Right. Wait a minute. Isn't that going to have a big performance impact or is it going to like make my ray fall over if I do that? Absolutely not. In fact, when you create a snapshot, all you're doing, you're not actually moving any data, copying any data. All you're doing is telling the array, hold on to some metadata pointers, start tracking changes, and you're just creating some additional metadata. And as we will teach everyone, as we go through some of our architectural decisions, Flash Array was designed to be a metadata engine. It's, that, that is a core part of the architecture. That's something that's very easy to do and they can do very quickly. So the, the interesting thing there is that that tip is absolutely relevant to safe mode capacity planning. Mm-hmm. It's also relevant to anything you're thinking about doing with snapshots, whether it's for having snapshots for dev test and for cloning or for general purposes. Because I, I think we agree that snapshots aren't backups, although maybe we kind of pretend a little bit at the edges, but you know, they're not backups. They're part of a data protection strategy and they should be. So hopefully you've been using this for a while, but especially the immutability nature of snapshots and the speed that they are impure, they've been brought back into the forefront, given all the stuff that's been going on around ransomware. I'm pretty sure there's a part two of that tip though, right, JD? Part two. So when we turn on safe mode, one of the things that it does is it, it, it enforces, we call it the eradication timer, which means when something is manually deleted, like a snapshot, it has to exist for that duration before it gets permanently eradicated. By default, that's 24 hours, right? But you can actually, as of 6.1.6 of Purity uh, Flash Array, you can go in and through the CLI, you can change that to any value that you want up to 30 days. So without ever turning safe mode on, change your eradication timer from 24 hours to whatever you think that you would like it to be. Andrew, you've got some recommendations around eradication timers. Yeah. So it's really fundamentally about how quickly are you going to detect the encryption phase of the attack, which is usually pretty fast because once applications start going offline. um, (laughs) Now, of course, there is the original scenario that this was built for of an admin delete something they didn't mean to like this is a get out of jail free card that way. Like it's Friday afternoon. I didn't have my coffee's wearing off. I'm about to go on the weekend. I'm rushing. Okay. There's that scenario. Usually, frankly, 24 hours is fine there, but you can move this up further, whether it's for the accidental admin I messed up or for a malicious scenario. And often I see that in the five to seven to 14 days based on how quickly you detect. Now, the main thing I want to make clear is that this is usually a conversation with customers. We want to help you, if you're a customer or a store partner, understand the formula behind why you would set that. And especially not be in the the sense of like, oh, I can't afford to set it to 14 days. I'm not going to do anything because then you're far worse off than at least Mm -hmm. doing something. Mm -hmm. Even as we want to help you think through what might be the best answer is the whole we don't want to let let best be the enemy of better, you know, moving the dial, that kind of thing. Absolutely. So 
those two things together are going to give me really good insights into how much consumption these snapshots are going to take. First, I'm creating them on a regular interval using the protection group. And second, I'm making sure that in the event that they are deleted, they are sticking around for that, uh, for that extended eradication timer. With those together, that'll help me really dial in my, my capacity requirements. And Andrew, you made another great point is, you know, you may be thinking, oh, if I can't, if I can't afford 14 days, if that's going to take me much capacity, I just won't turn it on at all. Don't think that way. This method that we described is exactly to help you understand that, right? So, hey, 14 is a little too much for me. What about seven? I can dial that in before I put those additional locks in place. So there you go. There's our tip of the segment. How about that? I think with that, we'll move on to segment number five. We're going to have more tips in following months. These are just literally we're pulling these out of the practical conversations that we have with customers. What are the most common things that we walk through where sometimes be real when you think through it, it's almost like, oh, that's obvious, but it's really fun when someone hasn't had the opportunity or the need to think through it. And you can be the one to tell them is like, you see the light bulb come on and it's not like we're rocket scientists per se, but we've thought through some of these paths and it's, it's fun to walk through and educate. So, okay. Section number five is are the are 15 architectural design decisions, plans, goals, using lots of words. But when we look at the origin of Pure, there were, there's this common thing of 15 architectural decisions that were behind the company and the founding, like some hard problems to solve, if you will. <clears throat> One of the interesting things I find is that if you're listening, you probably know about Evergreen. Evergreen as a term came later. And Evergreen as a business model, as an approach, as a marketing campaign, because it's all those things, but a very legitimate one, is enabled by and not possible without it just being stuff on a PowerPoint. It's only made possible by these 15 architectural decisions. You're like, well, that, that, that's really building it up. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's part of why I joined Pure. I think part of why you joined Pure, JD, like there's good marketing, there's fun videos, there's business programs, but they align all the way down to the stack to core architectural pieces that uniquely enable those capabilities differently, often, in this case, than other companies. Okay, so with that build up, a little bit of a review. Anything actually before we go into number one, anything you want to toss in about just the 15 architectural decisions overall, JD? I just love that we took the time to sit down and kind of write these down, right? Because so many times, like I've had the privilege of being involved in a few different startups in my career. And some of those origin stories are fascinating, right? And, you know, why did we build this? Why, what, what were going through the founders' minds when they said, you know what, something needs to be different in this space. And I think I know what that thing is and, and, and I'm going to make a product out of that. And so I, I love that organizationally we've captured this and it's part of our legacy and we can, we can have these conversations. And, and I think it's, it's something we don't share externally a lot. And so I'm actually really exciting, Andrew, that you and I get to kind of talk through this over the next uh, coming, coming segments. So the first one is simplicity, which in some ways, as we go into some of the later ones, you'll hear, you know, we talk about uh, controller design and data reduction and, and that kind of stuff. This one, depending on how you look at it, you'd be like, simplicity? Really? I mean, like, go look up the definition of the dictionary. There's nothing inherently technical there. Mm. Well, one of the supporting things that I use when I actually I'm talking about this is there's a slide where I'll go through what are all the things that people didn't like about the storage experience in the past. And for me, this really resonated because I, I lived it, right? It was from the procurement process where you had very long quotes. And like I, I and folks on my team in the past and partner side, you'd like write the human readable version of the 10 page quote, you know, that kind of thing uh, to the installation and the setup and how long that would take, as well as then the day-to-day -day operational side. And then in the support side, there's like these four separate columns. I'm gesturing. You can't see me waving my hands around if you're listening. But, you know, you think through what are all the things that go into that. And I'm going to draw a little bit of a pop culture reference here. So we've been down to uh, my, my sons are big fans of Legos, as many people are out there. And actually, not, not just not just my sons, like we both are too, JD. But there's one spot in the Lego movie where they actually talk about, you know, it's like in Cloud Cuckoo Land where it's like, know this, know that, know that, know that. It's like this list of no's. And in some cases, when we define uh, simplicity, what, what we actually talk about is a lot of things that you simply don't have to do, <laughs> as in no raid configuration. No tiering or tuning, no caching, no hotspots, no rebalancing, no alignment. Man, that takes me back. Andrew, I've got I got one for you. Let's let, blast from the past here. Short stroking. Yeah. Remember that one? Actually so. taking and using a subset of the disk to get improved performance. 
So I'm uh, for those who are listening. So it's not uh, so it's not Fight Club or saying the inside inside stuff. So this is when you would have say a ten or fifteen k very high performance drive. I think I saw this most when drives were in the eighteen and thirty six and seventy three gig sizes. Maybe the one forty four is too. Uh, but you would actually only use the first you know ten percent of the drive because that data would be on the inner part of the platter. And the head and the drive head could seek faster when it had to move around for random access data, which physical spinning drives aren't phenomenal at, right? Just because there's a physical head that has to move around. So Mike, you're right. Don't have to do that mm -hmm. as well as even alignment. Let's think about, you know, if you go back into VMware days <clears throat> and you actually had to do, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, actually, I, I know you do, but like how, how many times you did this of like going in and taking your VMware templates and adjusting the file system, the NTFS inside the VMDK to be aligned with the block boundaries of what the array expects so that when the host sends one IO down into the array, it doesn't turn into two IOs or into four IOs kind of thing, which is this uh, reverse of the right amplification or another version of right amplification in a, in a nasty way. So the simplicity piece started with how do we look at a lot of these different things that day-to-day -day storage admins are doing that should they have to do or just they get stuck doing it, right? Absolutely. And I think we were actually really fortunate here because how many of those things that you just talked about were really ways of taking hard drives and making them optimized in some way, you know, improving performance or improving resiliency. And there were, you know, there were so many things that, just you just as a storage admin you just had to think about to get those characteristics in that you really needed and so i think moving to flash 100 flash in some way was kind of the beginning of how do we simplify the architecture we simplify it by moving to a new modern media type that just for starters doesn't have a lot of those complications right mm-hmm I even think here, and this is now teasing ahead one of the other architectural decisions, but you know, in the past, I would help people architect around, do you want RAID 5? Mm -hmm. When I say that, no RAID configuration, okay? Do you want RAID 5? Do you want RAID 6? Do you want RAID 1 or RAID 10? Well, if it's a really heavy write workload, you're probably going to put it on RAID 1 or RAID 10. That's often like database logs, you know, kind of thing. Logs over data. here, my data volume's over there. I'm going to split mm -hmm. it. I'm going to partition my storage array into five different partitions. Mm -hmm. Any given VM has a C drive and a D and E and F and a G and it just kind of keeps going out because it's going <laughs> to different spots under the covers. You always wanted the resilience of RAID 6, but man, you knew what that meant from a performance standpoint, especially with write. So you kind of be like, well, I'm going to have to kind of do RAID 5, but I don't want to make them too big due to drive failures. Like there, there's like real architectural decision points here. And then even after they're done, that can play into continuing statically configured performance boundaries headroom as well as failure scenarios that uh, when you design it might be fine but i know i had customers where i'd come back in two or three years later for an array refresh and it'd be like it was especially if it was a good relationship we weren't yelling at each other but it was like yeah that design made sense three years ago we need to tear it all up again kind of thing because the applications changed enough of the static nature under the covers on the storage right just didn't fit anymore and sometimes i got yelled at about it usually fortunately it was more often like yeah things changed okay let, let's do the next iteration kind of thing Oh man, I've I've done a complete array migration just to change RAID type, and man, if I never have to do that again. So if we pull this up a little bit, eliminating operational inefficiencies, eliminating chance for errors, right? Because anything that we have to do manually, we could do it manually wrong wrong wrongly it's grammar lesson time oh well you know but the sense of like anything that i have to do on a day-to-day -day basis i i might mess it up you know, like we just even talked about with a little bit of the historical uh background on safe mode and some of the capabilities there you know someone accidentally deletes a volume or a lun like mm, i did not mean to do that what i find interesting here though is we when we were looking at this we actually went pretty far um this one i'm not Actually, I'm going to tell a story that I'm pretty sure is correct, but it's almost more to illustrate the idea as we were looking at some of how many knobs and dials can we take away. And we'll get into the, the trust factor involved in that in a minute. But but there was even some discussion around, you know, hey, could we actually, you know, you, you've got to say, I want to make a new volume or a new LUN. You've got to give it some kind of a name or an identifier. Okay, fine. And then probably size. 
But there was even some thought of like, hey, you know, could we, especially in say like VMware environments where there's standardized data store sizes, et cetera, could we even say, you know, you don't even pick the size. You just say, I want this many number and here's the name or the naming um, sequence, you know, and then you have a number inserted. So there was this kind of looking through each thing in the storage provisioning and maintenance process. Can we take this away or solve for it? So that you don't, so people, customers, UI customers don't have to do it on a day to day basis, but even kind of looking each step, how many things can we eliminate? Now, as you know from looking at Pure Array, we didn't eliminate giving the option to set a volume size because that might be a, a step too far kind of thing for just real world. But that mental process of looking at of, of how many things can we take away, which is also like good product design, you know that you're done when you can't subtract anything else. There's a little bit of Apple and other consumer design in there. But I think there's more stuff there. It's a fascinating debate, though, because, you know, what, what, so when I set a size on a new flash rate volume, Andrew, what, what does that actually do? Like under the hood, are they, they go in and saying, okay, well, here's one terabyte of flash memory that's going to be allocated. No. What is that? What does that even do? You could change it on the fly because it's a, can, we, can I call it a soft quota? I don't know if I'm merging terms too much, but you know, it's an artificial thing and you can make one, you can make a volume that's actually bigger than the flash array under the covers. No, do that carefully, please. But that illustrates the point that it's this virtualized thing. Yeah. Uh, that's a great example. I think some of the others, and we talked a little bit about the kind of the history and the, the, knowledge of an organization as it came up. And some of these, I think actually may even have even come out of the book that we wrote that I absolutely loved reading when I was in the process of coming over to join pure storage. And there's some stories in there around how we thought about simplicity and how we actually tested that. Um, one of those we still see today. So here's a little bit of an inside trivia pure. If you go to our internal uh, company store right now, there's a lot of cool stuff that we can get, you know, we get our, our hoodies and our, um, you know, cable wraps and all that fun swag. But one of the things you can actually order through the company store to this day is a set of index cards. And do you know what's on those index cards, Andrew? That we actually print the setup instructions for a flash ray on there. And that's a throwback to when we first created flash ray, it was so simple to install. You could literally take an index card and get up and running with just the handful of instructions on that card. And I, I think that is a fascinating real world example of what we talk about when we talk about its simplicity and the ease of which you can bring this online. Imagine, you know, I, I certainly know, um, I've provisioned storage in the past and it's been a week long deployment process mm -hmm. to get my first volume out there. And with flash array, it's, we really thought about that kind of day zero, day one experience, but we actually took that a step further. Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, no, I was going to, I was thinking if, um, we actually, I think mentioned this on the last peer report, um, unplugged is there is sometimes this uh, conversation about simplicity and intuitiveness, not, mm -hmm. not versus intuitiveness, but the related ideas. So if you're thinking like, hey, I listened to the Kaz podcast and he said intuitiveness and he and, and Kaz and Rao talked about that for a long time. Good. In this case, we're, we're, we're referring to the 15 decisions, which is literally an internal paper that was written inside Pure. And there's a slide presentation. I'll go through some of again. Simplicity is listed as the first one. But to me, that's not running at all away, at all, at all running away from the idea of intuitiveness. In some cases, if I'm going to play with the ideas a little bit, simplicity is that, you know, how many things can I subtract out before I can't take anything else out? That relates to intuitiveness. I look at it and if I kind of know the space a little bit, I essentially know what to do. And the, and the array and the, and the GUI and the other pieces don't get in the way of the fundamental thing that I'm trying to accomplish and don't add extra complications that I don't need. So in case you're thinking like there's no like uh, between those two ideas, they, they relate to each other. So along those lines, how do you actually test that though? So we, we say it's intuitive. We say it's simple. Yeah, here's your index card. But how, how do we actually prove that it's intuitive? And, you know, the real answer, of course, is that there's lots of, there's lots of tests. There's lots of customer surveys and, and scenarios that we go through and, and make sure that that works. But I love this next story because uh, it, it kind of, again, re-emphasizes re that historical aspect of where we came from. But the story is that in the early version of Flash Array, to actually make sure it was intuitive, Kaz gave his, and, and I don't remember the age at the time, maybe one of you knows, but actually gave his, gave his young son a Flash Array in that index card and said, all right, set it up. And he was able to actually deploy it. 
no, I love. I think I think he was eight, but I'm not sure. As soon as I say a number, he get in trouble. But you know, I'll give it my best shot. And well, I'm, sure, other- I'm sure if Rob wants to have Cause back on the show to kind of <laughs> to clarify some of our statements, uh, I'm sure Rob, you'd, you'd be love to have him back on, wouldn't you? Yeah, that was one we didn't cover. I don't recall, though that episode was a while ago. But it is one that is in the lore. I think when we do the lore that was the that lore. was the word i was trying to think of love the word lore right it's a lore is lore is really good but i think when when they did the employee orientation for new employees that was one of the things that he would mm-hmm. talk up on stage so it's out there um but you know i think that and it was the book you were referencing was that flash forward was that the book you were talking about it's a good book well, flash was only the beginning flash was only the beginning that's right yeah flash was only the beginning got a copy of that it's really terrific great stuff Came out at accelerated it's bright orange on the bookshelf yep yep absolutely so the last thought there is that, I mean, and we'll, we'll hit on this as we keep going through the decisions, um, the power off procedure for a pure rate, just to illustrate this idea of simplicity. So it's not like all oh, architecture things and they talked about ideas. Well, the power off procedure for a pure rate is there is no procedure. There is no power off button. It is you yank the power cables. There is absolutely hard engineering to make sure that that doesn't cause you to lose data because that's pretty important if you're a storage array, you know, and you're, you care about data. But it is literally pull the power cables. And from a simplicity standpoint, you know, how often do you do that process? How often are you likely to do it wrong when you don't do it very often and get out your list of things and no. So just no, like pull the power cables. That's it. Andrew, what I love about that story is at its surface, it sounds like it was built to be simple for the end user. And, and it certainly is, right? You know, hey, I don't I don't have a separate process to learn or to go through. But internally, actually, that simplicity goes back to the actual product development. Because think about mm-hmm. if I if I have to write one code path that says, okay, well, during an unplanned outage, do this thing. And then I have a completely separate code path that says, well, during a planned outage, do this other thing. Why, why does it make sense to develop and maintain and support two completely different code paths that essentially need to do the same thing, regardless of whether it was planned or unplanned, protect my data. And I love that we just collapse that down to, okay, we're going to protect your data. We're so confident in it. That is the one and only way of shutting down the system. And, and I think that's fantastic. What's crazy about architectural decision number one, simplicity, is that there's so much that's there, and then there's so much that also pulls forward and links into the other decisions. So if you enjoyed that, please make sure to come back in future months, as well as we never planned this out exactly. So I think if you were hoping for the behind the scenes section about, you know, requests for enhancements and even kind of advanced replication scenarios of product management and engineering, we will put that in next time. Come back for that. But I'm pretty sure there was one last thing here. I've, I've got it listed here as like BOTM. Rob, can, can you help me with what, what that means? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what that means for the last segment here. Yeah. First off, it's been really fun. Obviously, the training wheels are off. I've enjoyed just sitting in the background and letting both of you riff. And I've learned a lot. So hopefully everybody listening has learned a lot as well. And it's just great. That's the whole point of this episode format, Unplugged is to just peel back the layers of the onion a little bit and let everybody get a little bit deeper in. And what you covered was so vast. So thanks for that. But the one place I am going to insert myself on these episodes is around the passion of beer of the month. I'm going to keep coming on and doing those. And because JD is a brewer as well, it seems like there's some synergy there. So I will lead JD and then you can, you can add on, but September, October, Last time I did Oktoberfest beers because they were all over the place. And then they're closely followed by pumpkin beers. So in my view, pump, a little bit of pumpkin goes a long way. You don't need a lot of strong pumpkin, but it is a really nice flavor. In the fall, I've got some Uinta, which is a, a, a Utah brewery, and Elysian, which makes, I think, one of the best out there called Night Owl. And JD, I was shocked, 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 shocked last week heading into my local big box beverage store on October 10th or around there. And Christmas holiday beers are already out. So, well, I've got some of those in the fridge now. One of the best, one of my favorites is Anchor Steam. They're on their 46th year of the Anchor Classic Brew. And it's a classic and they change the recipe every year. Uh, that is always great. And then one that I've been fond of the last couple of years also that made it out this way in California is uh, Breckenridge. Breckenridge all the way out from 
Colorado, Breckenridge, a nice multi, multi winter warmer. Those are always fun. So um, JD, what do you, what do you got in your fridge? Well, first I'm going to comment on some of yours because um, while I absolutely love Christmas beer, I think the best thing to do with the pumpkin beer is to crack the lid, pour it down the sink, and you get that lovely spicy aroma all throughout your house. Um, I'm not drinking that stuff. I mean, hey, you know what though? To to be fair, we will in my household we say don't yuck my yum. Um, if you love Christmas beer, I mean, sorry, if you love pumpkin beer and that's what brings you joy, by all. Rob, go ahead and, and drink your pumpkin beer. Um, I'm, I'm going to pass. <laughs> um, but I do love the Christmas beer. And you know what? Actually, I, I can't remember if you mentioned this or if we had talked to it before the show, but one of the beers that you've been enjoying, one of the um, pumpkin beers is the Elysian Night Owl. Is that right? Yeah. So I remember a little bit of my history when I first moved, I'm not a Seattle native. I moved here from Arkansas. When I first moved here, one of the first beers that I came across was Elysian's Night Owl pumpkin beer. And I don't know if I've changed or the beers changed, but I actually really, really enjoyed that beer when I first moved to Seattle. Uh, Today, it's not my thing, but you know, those were, those were older times, but Speaking of Seattle beers, there's the quintessential Seattle Christmas beer, the Jolly Roger Christmas Ale by Maritime Pacific. Um, This was a brewery that started in Ballard, which was the neighborhood that I lived in for a long time. I I moved elsewhere now, but a little brewery down there and you know, you know, it's Christmas time when you start to see this beautiful, beautifully designed bottle that's got uh, skull and crossbones. They have a, they have a maritime theme, a skull and crossbones with a little Santa hat on. Uh, Jolly, Ro- Jolly Roger Christmas Ale is a lot of fun. Um, that, that's my that's going to be my pick. Well, I hope it's still around. I'm heading to Seattle next month for a Seahawks game around the weekend, right before Thanksgiving holiday time here in the U.S. So I will take a look for that one. But good to hear about that. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you've got a favorite beer out there and you want to send in feedback to us, we'd love to hear from you at pureport at purestorage.com is the email. And with that, I'll kick it back to you, Andrew, because I think we're about to wrap. I think if you enjoyed this, please make sure to give us feedback. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn. We're trying to pull stuff that when we talk to other people about it during our day jobs, like there's the responses like, hey, that's interesting and bring that here in this format. But we always want to hear more from you. Thanks so much for joining us. Where are you, JD? Hey, Andrew, this was a lot of fun. I love that we started on the journey of the uh, architectural decisions. I'm really excited to get into that with you over time. Rob, thank you as always for bringing us on and I enjoy the show, everybody. Awesome. Great work, gentlemen. Great to have you leading the charge on Unplugged. More of you and less of me. Always a good thing outside of my normal episode format, which of course will be continuing on some great new episodes coming up. And make sure, hey, last chance on October 27th is our Big Bet webinar with ethical hacker Hector Monsieur. I expect to publish this prior to that. So if you have not signed up and registered, you want to attend that and get some great insights. And thank you for listening to this episode of Unplugged. For Pure Storage and the Unplugged crew, Andrew Miller and J.D. Wallace, this is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. <laughs>